All right. Welcome, everyone. Are you having a good WIC? Yes. Are you alive still? I, I notice some of you are sleep deprived, but I am too. I, got in, I finally got to sleep at 12, and then I woke up at 4. So if I can make it, you can too. But maybe if I had you up here running around, that would help. So we'll do our best to keep everybody focused. We want to begin with prayer, and then we'll get into our topic for this afternoon. Father God, we want to thank you that you are a God who is powerful. Help us not to settle for substitute counterfeit revivals and gospels, but to simply accept that you are the powerful God who can do powerful things right in our generation. May we have a worship that is an encounter that changes our lives. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our topic is I worship. And you can tell a little play on words there. I want to deal with what is worship like when God is involved? And is there a counterfeit that is out there that we need to be careful about? seems like there's a lot of worship wars. If you guys have been around a little bit, you know what I'm talking about. And so there are people who say, we've got to get more excited in worship. And there's other people who say, you stick with the hymnal. Unless it says Seventh-day Adventist hymnal on it, you can't sing it. And then you have other people who go, you know, I'm bored by the hymns. Unless there's, there's drums in it, I can't listen to it. It's boring. What's going on here? Are we going, do we go by the word? Do we go by, by uh, the revivals and the encounters out there? What should worship be like? And so I'm going to ask an honest question. Is it time for us to embrace contemporary worship? That wasn't the way you were, asking, you were thinking I would ask the question. But let's just think about some of the reasons. Uh, number one, today's culture is different and since music is cultural, we need to update our music so that it appeals to today's culture. Uh, I read an article recently. Uh, it came into my email box actually only just a week ago. And it said, uh, why should worship remain the same when people have changed? You understand the argument? Why should worship remain the same when people have changed? Today's generation is not like previous generations. So maybe because culture is different, we need a new cultural form of worship. Second argument that's given is our current worship services are boring and dead. And we should be able to encounter God. So if, if you are making two options, you can say you can have a lively, exciting worship, or you can have a dead worship, then what are you going to choose? Well, you're probably going to go for the lively, exciting one, where you can encounter God. Number three, uh, we need to embrace contemporary worship because we need to get more people involved. If we have more praise team skits and puppetry, more people will be part of the worship service, and then it'll be a great thing. And then number four, this is the only way to keep young people in the church. If we don't do something, the young people are going to go out the door because they're tired of listening to the old hymns. So what do you say? Let's embrace contemporary worship. Ah, you guys are not buying this. I wasn't convincing enough. <laughs> All right, yeah, I'm at WYC. It's unlikely that I'd be saying that. So let's take a look at how we're going to do this because I believe that arguments only have power when there's some truth in them. So these arguments have some power because there is some truth in it. Is culture different than it was 50 years ago? A hundred years ago? Yes, it is. So there have been cultural changes, and we do need to take that into mind, so into consideration. Yes, culture has changed. Number two, are many worship services boring and dead? 
Yes, you know, sometimes when they're singing a hymn and they're singing it at half the speed, have you ever been in churches that do this? You know, just as I am with, and then she tries to find the notes on the piano, out one plea. And, they, and, and you do feel like it's a funeral. I want to go running down the aisle and go, don't you realize he's not dead, he's alive? <laughs> because Jesus is risen, we should be able to praise him. So yes, many of our worship services are dead and boring. And I agree, there's some truth to it. Third argument, we need to get more people involved. You know what? You're absolutely right. Too many of our worship services are like this. One person standing up in front speaking, everybody else being spectators. Is the church meant to be a spectator sport? No, the church should be a body of believers. And we should have far more involvement of people. The question is, do you need praise team skits and puppetry to do it? Fourthly, this is the only way to keep young people in the church. And I'm going to be very honest with you. We are losing young people in droves. All the statistics out there clearly show that young people are leaving the church. So, is this the answer to keeping them in the church? That's the question we raise. Now, notice the term terminology when we come to this. Notice that we need to embrace, what is it called? Contemporary, Contemporary worship versus traditional worship. Now what that sets up is, you know, it's not that one worship is better than another. It's just that you like to do things by tradition and we like to be relevant to the culture. You, you follow the argument here? So do you want to be relevant or irrelevant? That's what it's basically saying. Do you want to go with your old rituals or do you want to be relevant to today's generation? Do you even care about our generation? Have you ever heard these arguments? Do you care about what the music we like to listen to? Or are you going to just be stuck in your rituals over here and, and not give a hoot about what's going on in our generation? If you want to do that, then you can have a traditional service and we'll have a contemporary service. Just think of it as a buffet. We have many different options. Would you like the hymns or would you like a... A, a chorus, or would you like to have some contemporary jazzed up music? We have it all on offer. Just come to our buffet. We have it all available for you. Just pick what you would like. Isn't that what's happening out there? In fact, I had a prominent youth director who told me that that was his philosophy of youth ministry. Provide a diverse enough buffet that anybody who wanted a different kind of worship style could get it. Is this going to be what will keep young people in the church. Well, this argument is really a culture argument. It says the gospel is always in a cultural form. So you, you dress up the gospel in a cultural form. And this makes sense. Jesus was incarnated as a what? A human being, but what kind of human being? A first century Jew. That's the kind of being. So he lived within that culture. So the gospel came within that culture of that time. And so in the same way, they say, you've got to incarnate the gospel into the culture of the time. And then a, a text is used, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 to 22. Paul said, I want to be all things to all people. To the Jew, I become as a Jew. To the Gentile, I become as a Gentile. To those under the law, as, the, as one having the law. To those not having the law, as one not having the law. And they say, this shows you that Paul adapted himself to the culture. Now, what they ignore are two basic things. Number one, the context, and number two, the focus. The context, and you can read it, the context of the chapter has nothing to do with worship. 
You go and look at that, that chapter, nothing at all to do with worship. It has to do with the right of the apostle to be supported by the church. And he is saying, look, I don't demand anything from anyone. In fact, I'm the one who finds myself adapting to meet your needs. He's not talking about worship. He's talking about his sacrifice in adapting to where they are. That's what it's about. So when people use it for worship and try and say, oh, we need to use this for worship, that's not the context, that's not what the passage is about. Secondly, look at the focus. The focus is not culture, but the gospel. He begins verse 16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's the focus. You read it through. It's all about I am an apostle, a messenger of the gospel. Verse 23, right after this section, he says, I do it all for the sake of the what? The gospel, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Is he wanting to be cultural or is he wanting to be gospel-centered? Gospel-centered. So when someone comes along and goes, hey, you know, Paul was really into adapting to the culture, whatever the culture was at the time. I'm sure if there were a lot of, you know, he would have brought drums into the church if that was what was going to reach young people because I do all things to be all things to all people. That's how Paul was. And I say that's not what he's saying in this, in this passage. You're going to have to find a different passage of Scripture. So should we embrace today's culture? And I'm, I'm going to have a number of quotations here. This one is from Gary Parrott, professor of Christian education at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He, he noticed this. When I attend services that feature contemporary worship today, it seems that 80 to 90% of all the songs sung by the congregation prominently feature that familiar trinity of I, me, my. In fact, uh, he was make, making note of the fact, and this was... In the days of overhead projectors, he was saying, you know, back in the 80s when he used to have overhead projectors, they had trouble fitting in all of the songs that began with I into their little folders, all the overhead transparencies, because they were like half of all of their songs began with the letter I. And you can imagine that was back 20 years ago. He's saying today it's even worse. It's I, me, my. And you listen to, to the songs, even older ones. My Jesus, my Savior, you know. Um, this is, this is, it's all about the I worship. And you'll, you just take a look at it. Rarely do we sing songs that remind us of our identity as the body of Christ, the people of God. In cultures that are already dominated by narcissism, that's a self-centered focus, this is both unwise and dangerous. Now, let me tell you, we are all about I. Why do you think it's so popular to have iPod, iPad, I worship. <laughs> because that's what makes us feel good. It's about I. I want to create my own unique worship. I want something that I can respond to, something that I am comfortable with, something that creates an, an emotional response within me. It's kind of like this church. Hopefully this will play. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, can you hear that? heartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week. By the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. <laughs> this guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guy. Right? Yeah. Say no more. <laughs> if your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Terry and I don't give a lot to the church. So we sure like nothing that. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. 
When I'm in the truck service, can my car get a buff and a whack? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. <laughs> now I know it's it's a little satire there's of course no me church because some of you are like oh wow I should look that church up but there is no me church but what it does tell us is that this is where people are at they're asking for all these kinds of things and it sounds ridiculous but I've gone to churches where they're handing out tickets to the baseball game it was Father's Day, and they said, hey, we want your dads to go and enjoy something with your kids. And so they gave out tickets to the baseball game. And I was in another church where they were offering other things. You know, it was like, let's give people what they want, and then they'll come to our church. So the essential idea is that church is about a list of services and products, and you come and you, you pay us, and we'll provide the services. But this kind of worship is I worship. It's not about God. It's not about what He does for us. It's, it's, it's not about what we can do for Him. It's about what God can do for us and what the church can do for us. It is I-focused worship. So what is at the heart of I worship? God is no longer at the center of worship. Worship is about what I get out of it, about how I feel, and about what I need. So I want us to, to think about how did I worship come about and we're going to we're going to share with you a little history later on now again i'd like to give another quotation uh oh yeah there i'm back i'm back to that one it seems that if it does not matter this is the the same person gary speaking he says it seems that it does not matter if i sing during worship i quoted him earlier from gordon conwell uh, theological seminary he says for i cannot hear myself even if i do nor can I hear the brothers and sisters sitting near me. In fact, we can only hear those few people standing up front with their microphones. Sometimes we barely hear even them because their voices are also drowned out by the amplified instruments that are supposedly accompanying all of us as we sing. What's happening in I worship? It's not really about God's people gathering together to do communal praise. What's going on instead is that we are just having a massive music rhythmal beat. Boom, 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 boom. And we're doing this thing together. We can't even hear what we're saying. We're getting drowned out. There's a few people screaming up in the front, but we can barely hear them because it's all about the music and the emotional experience. Have I been too hard? Now, I'm, I, some of this may be an extreme. Not all of this is this bad. But I can tell you I've been in a lot of services where this is taking place. And uh, he goes on to say, for one thing, while attempting to reach the unchurched, churches may actually be unchurching the churched, <laughs> as might Michael Horton argues, or otherwise dumbing down for the sake of evangelism, as Marva Dawn puts it. I know of a church, for example, that has printed the scripture text in the bulletin or projected it on the screen each week for the seekers who might be attending without a Bible in hand. An unintended consequence, however, has been that the believers have stopped bringing their Bibles and the sound of pages rustling as the saints move from passage to passage during the sermon is seldom heard. Why? Because we don't need to do anything. We can sit like it's a TV show and just watch the screen. Oh, wow, look, there's another thing. 
Wow, that's so cute. And then the music starts, and we can mumble. And in Adventist churches particularly, I've noticed that when the praise team is singing up in the front, no one else is singing. It's just the praise team. You listen next time to see how many people are singing while the praise team is up there singing. Everybody else is kind of mumbling, you know, or they're not doing anything at all. They're just watching it as spectators. And so something has gone wrong in our worship. In its service of public worship, the church must obey scriptures as Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of what? Selfish ambition or vain conceit. Does that sound like some... Uh, praise teams today, and I'm not saying all of them, you understand. But in what? Humility, consider others more important than yourselves, for each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I cannot fathom why we would rather split a church than change our music. Why would we do that? Because it's all about me. It's all about my worship. It's all about my experience. And if I'm not getting something out of the worship, then that's more important than whether my brother or sister is offended at the kind of music that I'm bringing in. Now, how did I worship come about? And this is complicated, so I've kind of simplified the history here. But uh, after the Reformation... The reason why the Reformation was so powerful is that what Martin Luther did is he took his theology and he put it to music. And so now what infuriated the papists was that you could go anywhere and hear Martin Luther's theology. Why? Because people were singing it. So, a mighty fortress is our God. By the way, that's how the Germans sing it. The British, they tend to destroy things. So they took this nice upbeat song and they turned it into... A mighty fortress is our God. The Germans do this, and you, you go and hear it sung in the German way, and I can't sing it in German, but it goes, A mighty fortress is our God. You notice the difference? Yeah, well, the, because the English have no rhythm, they destroyed it. So, <laughs> the problem is, in the process, we, we then stretch it out even further by the way we play it on the piano, and then we've really killed the song. Martin Luther took the theology, put it to music, and the theology spread like wildfire. That was what was happening with Reformation music. Now, what happened is that, however, this, the worship service tended to be more doctrinal. The elements, you'd have a lot of Bible preaching. It would be the Word. Even the singing would be about God. It was more biblical, more about God than about my experience. So maybe it was more heavily objective and factual. So I worship became a reaction to this. And I worship really begins back in the 1800s. That's when songs began to change from the objective to the subjective. And you can look at our hymnal and you'll see songs that were written before the 1800s tended to be very objective. Songs that were written in the 1800s and early 1900s tended to be much more about my feelings and my experience. Now, my view is we need both. Right? We need the objective. This is who God is. This is what the doctrines are. And we need my experience. But what has happened in the reaction is we've swung from one to the other to now we barely have any doctrine in the songs that are being produced. Contemporary Christian music had very interesting roots as part of this I worship phenomena. What led to contemporary Christian music was that in the 1970s, there was the hippie movement. And the strange thing in the hippie movement, no one expected hippies to find Jesus. 
And suddenly a whole Jesus movement came through the hippie movement, and it was really a counterculture to the counterculture of the hippie movement. And so as the Jesus movement spread, they started singing songs about Jesus, but they sang them the only way they knew how. They used rock and roll tunes. And so they started singing about Jesus with these rock and roll tunes. And no one ever thought that that would come into the church because they're like, you don't. And that's why there was such a reaction against guitars in the 1970s because it represented rock and roll. So you don't bring those guitars into the church because they were afraid that this hippie movement would come into the church. Well, it didn't come in right away, but it came in later through contemporary Christian music. Grown in the last 25 years, it used to be in the 1980s an $80 million business in sales. It's now $700 million business. That is phenomenal growth. Uh, Everyone else is experiencing a decline. Contemporary Christian music is on the rise. Uh, John Still, president of CCM Communications, says, What contemporary Christian music has done is make the worship experience more, what's that key word he uses? Relevant and therefore more? meaningful to a new generation. So what they're saying is this stuff that came in from rock and roll that has now come into the church as contemporary Christian music, it's more relevant and it's more meaningful. But even he admits that it's not always the best. And so let me show you what he says about contemporary Christian music. This is the other side of it. But the danger is contemporary Christian music is very what? Performance oriented. Would you agree with that? It's it's about the person performing up in front. The line between worship and entertainment can very easily get blurred. Is this worship or is it entertainment? Music and worship should draw attention toward God, but contemporary music often draws attention to itself. So here's a man right in contemporary music who is saying, you know, this has made it more relevant and meaningful, but you know, it does seem to have a lot of problems. Style noted in a recent interdenominational survey of people in their 20s that they are beginning to move away from contemporary Christian music. Now, the problem in Adventism, we're always 20 years behind. So we'll finally figure out that this wasn't the greatest, best deal. But right now, people are fighting for it. And it tends to be more baby boomers than it is actually your generation. Because your generation is already figuring out that our deepest desire is to have a what kind of encounter? A genuine encounter with God, and they seek to recover what are the two things? Depth and substance in worship. What has happened is that we are reacting against the superficial worship that has taken over, you know, our, our worship services that tends to be the same three words sung seven times. Or, or some people say 7-11 songs, seven words sung 11 times. And, you know, we are reacting against superficial worship because we want the real thing. And I believe it's not just going to be going back to singing sweet, sweet lullabies that put our church to sleep in the first place. It's going to have to be something else that's not the contemporary Christian music, but neither is it just, just go back and shut up and sing our hymnals like we always did. Are you following me? Because God is trying to bring about true revival. The problem of relevancy is to me that people want something that generally isn't good for them. I want to compare worship to food. Now just think about this. What kind of foods are you attracted to? Fast food. 
Yeah, Starbucks, ice cream, Talk candy, talk about, well, some of us don't experience that, but <laughs> others do. Yeah, there's, you're attracted to things that generally aren't good for you. If I ask my kids, you know, you can have anything you want when it comes to food. What are they going to ask for? All the wrong things. Oh, yeah, just ice cream, yeah. We were in the, the airport lady when we were trying to figure out our way coming over here. We asked the lady at the airport. Uh, you know, she said to us, would you like coffee or anything? We said, no, no, no. And then my daughter figured out that this lady was going to offer us anything we wanted. She says, could we have ice cream? <laughs> I said, no, no, no. We are not going to serve you ice cream. This was at like 6 o'clock in the morning. We are not going to serve you ice cream at 6 o'clock in the morning. And there are no vegan ice creams here. Anyway, uh, it's complicated to explain. So <laughs> what do people want? They want generally what's not good for them. And so if you just give people what they want in worship, they'll tend to go for worship that makes them feel good rather than worship that challenges them. That's why they'd rather have worship that tickles their ears rather than worship that challenges their hearts. And so the problem with giving people what they, what they ask for is that they don't always know what they need. In the same way, just like food, a worship service needs to provide enough variety, enough different things so that you can have a balanced diet. So there are times when you're going to have in a worship service something that's more for the kids. It's not very challenging. It's not something that you go, that was profound, man. It's going to be something that the kids go, wow, I need to obey. Very simple message, but it's going to be for them. There are going to be other things in the worship service that are going to be deep. And some people are going to be, I didn't get that. But other people are going to say, wow, that changes the whole way I think. We're going to have different elements to worship service. And some people, some people, do some people like Indian food? Do some people not like Indian food? Yeah, so what happens with worship is that you're going to find that not every piece of music appeals to everybody. And, and that's okay. That is not a problem to have variety, to have diversity. The problem is when we are feeding people a fast food, superficial diet that never has any good old Swiss vegan steak in it. Anyway, whatever it might be. It never has any substance to it. Now, the, this was brought out by a little book called This Little Church Went to Market by Gary Gilley. And uh, interesting title. He says, we have today market-driven churches. The basic premise is find out what people want, provide it for them, and then seek to give the gospel along the way. You know, once you've got them and you're providing for them, then you try and give them a little bit of the gospel. And you definitely will minimize distinctive differences. All you're interested in is give them a little bit of the gospel. The danger of this approach is that the gospel becomes trivialized. Life loses its depth. God becomes transformed into a product to be sold, faith into a recreational activity to be done, and the church into a club for the like-minded. So we just get together and we have this fun time together, and that's worship. And this kind of swept through particularly youth groups. If, if you were around in like the, the 90s, this was the in thing, you know, provide popcorn and a movie for young people, and that was somehow a spiritual activity. And that swept through. And eventually what happened was other denominations realized this isn't working. But because the Adventist church is... 20 years behind, we're, still, we're only starting to figure this out now. That what young people need is not popcorn and a movie. What they need is a challenge. And so we need to have not a market-driven approach, but something else. 
A book was written by Lee Strobel uh, called Inside the Mind of Unchurched Harry and Mary. And he comes up with an assumption that I'm going to show you needs to be challenged. If more than 90% of the population expresses some form of belief in God, which they do, it's kind of dropping, but they do, and a desire for a relationship with Him, but less than half of the population ever attends church, what conclusion should you draw? Lee Strobel concludes, Harry has rejected what? Church, but that doesn't necessarily mean he has rejected God. In other words, I believe in God. It's church I'm not comfortable with. So the assumption is what we need to do is we need to make church relevant. And so where uh, the seeker-sensitive services kind of got going was a young man by the name of Bill Hybels decided he was going to start a church. And to start this church, he knocked on people's doors and he asked them, I'm, I'm planning on starting a church in this area, but I want to know, do you attend a church? And if not, why? And people started giving their responses. You know why people no longer attend a church? Three reasons. It was boring, it was irrelevant, and it was predictable. And so I said, you know, I go, and every week they sing the same songs. I, I know when they stand up, when they sit down, I'm bored. It has no relevance to my life. They talk about things that don't touch my life. So he decided to have a church that would be not those things. What would it be? Exciting, relevant, and not necessarily predictable. It would be very professional. So he started services that were called seeker-sensitive services that were based around seekers who were coming in. He says, we're going to expand ourselves to try and reach seekers and be sensitive to their needs. The problem with this approach is brought up by Gary Gilley. He says, the Bible clearly says that humanity does reject God. It's not just that they're rejecting the way church is done. What surveys really show is that people do not reject gods of their own creation and imagination, but they do reject the true God. You understand what he's saying? That what is happening is that people don't like sin. They don't like being confronted. They don't like having worship that challenges them to read the Bible. But they're quite happy to have a God who's loving and Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and taking care of them and helping them with their daily difficulties. That kind of God is great. You know, the Joel Osteen kind of God. You know, he's always, he's always reaching out, God, God has a plan for your life. God is, you know, and that's the kind of thing going on with Joel Osteen and all of these other guys. People are flocking to these churches, but are they creating a God of their own imagination and creation? Are they preaching the full gospel message? I was watching Joel Osteen on, um, uh, on a TV show. I had a little video clip. And I tried to get it in, but it wouldn't play, where they were asking him some questions about the Bible. And he said, you know, I really don't know a whole lot about the Bible. But what I do know is this. And he goes on to sprout his theology that God will bless you. And whatever you hand over to him, he will do tenfold, especially if you support Joel Osteen's ministry and those kinds of things. Here's the challenge that Gary Gilley comes up with. He says, if we start accommodating to people's needs and desires... He says, this is what's going to happen. The express design of the user-friendly philosophy is to make unconverted sinners feel comfortable with the Christian message. The only way this is possible, I fear, is to change the message. Oh, they have this kind of music out there? We'll just bring that music into the church. They like to have entertainment out there? We'll just bring entertainment into the church. They have this kind of stuff out there? They have programs they have. You can send people to the games. We'll just bring that into the church. And let me tell you, I've tried this method. It does not work. 
I was a youth pastor, and I was a campus chaplain, and I didn't know much about what I should do, so I went to the youth ministry gurus. I said, what do I do? They said, you've got to bring the people in. You've got to do something that will appeal to everyone. So I brought in music. Uh, we had a program called uh, Young Life, which other people refer to as Wildlife, uh, because it got so out of control. We had the speakers swinging in on like ropes. I, I remember I had one program where I had strobe lights and I did fireworks. I almost burnt the place down, but that's another story. I had fireworks going on. And you know what? People flocked. It's true that they flocked. But my numbers of baptisms went down. They weren't being converted. They were being entertained. And after a period of time, they started to leave because I couldn't do it as well as the world could. I was a novelty for a while. But eventually, the world was much better at offering music and fireworks and professional productions than I was. I couldn't compete with Hollywood. And so eventually, the people started leaving. I realized, what am I doing? I know what works. Evangelism and sticking with the message that God has given us. And I started preaching that message. I had an evangelism campaign on campus. And, and although I didn't have those big novel numbers of the people coming in, I had more and more baptisms because people were being changed from the inside out. You know, you start taking a look at music today. And how does this look any different? This is hip-hop Christian artist Toby Mac. How does this look any different from a non-Christian artist? It's not. Who's being exalted there? Self. Self. It's not about Jesus. It's about the artist. And, you know, and I just look at the lyrics. You bring the heart. I'll bring the soul. I'll bring the flag. You bring the pole. I mean, it's, if, it, just saying it, yeah, it just seems laughable. We'll fly it so high the whole world knows the dream of a king about to unfold. We're about to do this thing for real. Diverse city got mass appeal. So put your hand in the hand of mine and we'll spread this love like dandelion. I mean, come on, folks. If this is the depth of where we're going, does this tell you anything about Jesus? No, it's, it's kind of a, a hippie song. You know, let's, let's get together, black and white, we all love each other, put a hand around. Now, I think it's great. I think God has a plan for black and white to come together. But it's not about, we're about to do this thing for real. Diversity got mass appeal. I, I can't even rap. But, you know, that's, if that, that kind of thing is not going to work. So what's happening, what's going on here is that, is that content is going down and culture is being pushed up. So what do we do? What do people want? We'll supply that culture. Content down, culture going up. Everyone follow what's going on here? So instead of having good content, instead we've got, we've simply got more culture. What's happening in culture? We'll copy those across. You can't even tell the difference between the different kinds of music and how they play. The only difference is the, the lyrics are tweaked a little. And contemporary Christian artists tell you that the labels tell them not to put Jesus too much in it. Because who owns the record-making labels, the, the CD music and so on? Who owns all of those labels? The entertainment industry. That's who owns it. They're out there to make money. Another thing that we see, not only is it about culture, it's about experience. Do I feel God? Do I have an experience with God? So what we have is that theology is going down, experiential religion is going up. So now you don't even have to have a Bible text for it anymore. It's not what does the Bible say. It's, you know what, I feel. I feel. Have you heard that a lot lately? You know, I, I, I confront people. I say, why are you dating a pagan? I mean, you just got to ask some people that sometimes. Why are you dating a pagan? Because I just feel this is right. But it's not, it's not according to the word. 
you know, I had a dream about this. And the Spirit told me. I'm like, what spirit? <laughs> yeah. And so what's going on is that we are, we, are, we are taking our theology. We have become theologically illiterate because we've gone for experience and emotions. People go, there was too much theology in that sermon. I'm like, you know, there was barely any theology in that sermon. But they're just not used to it because they're used to entertainment. There's the emergent church movement that's come out. Don't tell me about sound doctrine, you legalistic doctrine mongers. And what's going to happen when we start getting rid of sound doctrine? Whee! Crash and burn. Notice what happens, even with Bill Hybels at the Willow Creek uh, Church. In 2007, this article came out, October 18, 2007, Christianity Today. The, the title of the article was Willow Creek Repents. Remember, this was the originator of the seeker-sensitive services. We made a what? Mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. They had just done a survey of their congregation after more than 20 years of doing these seeker-sensitive uh, surveys, and they discovered that people were not reading their Bible, were not praying. In other words, they were no more converted after 20 years than when they had been so-called converted. And this is what he says. We should have taught them to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people how to read the Bible between service, how to do the spiritual practices. He's talking about prayer and so on. Much more aggressively on their own. In other words, what has happened is that I worship has not result, it resulted in changed lives. It's just resulted in more people meeting in a worship service. It's a change of culture, but not a change of heart. So can we grow churches by entertainment? Can we do evangelism by entertainment? Let's bring people in and then we'll evangelize them. Is the worship service for the believer or the unbeliever? And what I'm going to say may not sit comfortably with some people, but I'm going to say it anyway. God's plan for the church is to gather together to glorify Him and to be sent out into the world. So we don't say to people, hey, come to church and the preacher will convert you. Come to church and the music will convert you. No, what we are doing is we say, come to church because this is a place where true believers gather in Jesus' name to pray that we will be changed so much that we will go into the community and that our lives will impact on others and that because worship is our entire lives, we are going to have such a change out there that other people will be coming to our church to say what's happening in that church because God must be present there. Amen. Church is for believers not for unbelievers but when unbelievers come in they're going to be impacted by a God who is a seeker of their souls. So when we are connecting with who God really is of course church will be open to seekers. Of course it will but that won't be our focus because our focus will be God. Amen. Do Adventist churches grow by using entertainment? Most research shows the following. Adventist churches grow through public and personal evangelism and through committed churches that effectively reach out to their community. And I could give you example after example. They did a survey in the Midwestern Union where they asked, uh, they took 40 growing churches and 40 declining churches. They asked the pastor a question. What is your number one priority in ministry? And you know what they discovered? In every church that was growing, the number one priority of the minister was evangelism. In every church that was declining, it was something else. Administration, visitation, counseling, other things. Growing churches, their priority was evangelism. Declining churches, their priority was something else. 
They, they've, they've done other studies. They did a massive study uh, called uh, American Congregations Today, and they took all of the Adventist congregations that participated. They drew them out of that study, and they said which congregations were growing and which were declining. And they found two things. This was thousands of congregations. I think it was uh, almost 2,000 congregations. And they said, what, what made the difference between growing congregations and declining? Growing congregations were doing evangelism and had community service. Declining congregations did not. It's as simple as that. So how do you grow an Adventist congregation? You do it by evangelism. You don't do it by doing entertainment. And this just makes logical sense. If you're going to try and grow your church by entertainment, the Baptist church is going to do it better than you can. The Pentecostal church is going to do it better than you can. Why would they change their diet, change their day of worship, when it's all about entertainment? No, the only reason why a person joins the Seventh-day Adventist church, if they're not a Seventh-day Adventist, is because they are convicted by the message. That's why they join the church. So you want to grow an Adventist church, you preach the Adventist message. If you don't want to preach the Adventist message, you're not going to grow an Adventist church. You may grow something else, but it won't be an Adventist church. Because why would you make those changes in your life? You'd rather go to the church down the street that doesn't require those kinds of changes. There is no conclusive evidence, and they've done lots of studies on this, and I just read one from Andrews University a little while ago, that changing the worship style has any significant impact on whether an Adventist church will grow. So people who go, we're going to change our worship style and we're going to grow. There is no evidence that that will take place. So, do we still need doctrine? Do we still need worship to have doctrinal elements? Now, remember, I'm not saying that worship just needs to be about doctrine. It does need to deal with our experience. But do we need doctrine? Now, notice this uh, fellow here, Dean of the Billy Graham School of Mission, Evangelism, and Church Growth, Thomas Rayner. He wrote a book called Surprising Insights from the Unchurched. And he said, you know, we keep asking the unchurched about what church should be like. Why don't we ask people who used to be unchurched and are now back in church? And let's ask them why they're back in church. So that's the question they asked. And he came up with a totally surprising answer. Sometimes, he says, the conventional wisdom to reach the unchurched has been to lower expectations to tell guests we really do not expect anything from them. But the unchurched are more likely to return, he says, after doing the study, if they understand that the church expects much of their members. People have no desire to be part of something that makes no difference. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, come join us. We don't make a difference in the world. Come join us. We're all about me. So they asked some questions from these previously unchurched. They used to be unchurched, now they were in church. What factors led them to choose the particular church they were in? 90% said it was the pastor and his preaching. And what was it that he did in his preaching? 88% said that it was the doctrines. Rather than doctrines are actually pulling people into the church. People want to hear what is it that you believe. They want to hear that these days. 49% said it was the friendliness of the members. Then it was being witnessed to family, sensing God's presence, a friendship, adult, youth, and children's classes. And only 11% said that the worship style influenced them. So let's look at the real statistics rather than going by what we think or feel. What the unchurched want? Well, they said, what do you really want? And they all came back with essentially the same answer. Meaty preaching. We're done with superficial, low down, doesn't do anything for me, little, he has five ways, reader's digest kind of preaching. We want the real thing. 
The formerly unchurched told us that they were attracted to strong biblical teaching and to understanding Christian doctrine. Pastors who understand this and who communicate doctrine clearly are among the leaders whose churches are reaching the unchurched. How did they ask the question, how did the pastor influence the unchurched? And they said it was his preaching. The number one response was that he had preaching that does what? Teachers, Adventist churches, if we just grasp this, should be growing by leaps and bounds. Amen? Number two response was that he, she had preaching that applied to life. Now let me give you a powerful equation. Truth plus life equals powerful preaching. When we have truth that meets the life, truth that applies to my life, that's when you've got powerful preaching. So it's not truth or life, it's truth plus life. Amen? So what we need is worship that is powerful, real worship, powerful, spirit-filled, that touches the heart and challenges the soul. And I, and I want to tell you that we don't know how to worship. So we, we can't really point the finger too much. You know, I can say, you guys don't know how to worship. Look at all the stuff you're bringing into church. But let me tell you, we don't know how to worship. And here's why. We expect the worship service to do what our personal devotional life is not. So what have I got to do in order to worship? Got to get the drums going. I got to build up the music. And then it can put me in the frame of mind where I can worship. No, I'll tell you this. The most powerful worship I've seen is when you have a group of people on such a heartfelt mission for God, where there's such a revival throughout their life. You can give them any song to sing you like, and they'll sing it with heart and with passion because it's not the song that does it. It's their life experience with God. Worship becomes a response to what God is already doing. And here, notice great controversy, page 464. Before the final visitation of God's judgment upon earth, there will be among the people of God such a what? Revival of contemporary godliness. Is that what it says? Primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out on his children. The enemy of souls desires to hinder this work. And before the time for such a movement will come, he will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a what? A counterfeit in those churches which he can bring under his deceptive power so they won't realize it. He will make it appear that God's special blessing is poured out. There will be manifest what is thought to be what? Great religious interest. Multitudes will exalt that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit. Under religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. So notice the elements here. Number one, God is planning to send a mighty revival to his church at end time. Amen. Can you say amen to that? Number two, his Holy Spirit will be poured out powerfully. Can you say amen to that? Number three, however, the enemy desires to hinder this work and will introduce a counterfeit. Number four, he will introduce a false religious revival into Christian circles. And under religious guise, Satan will take the world captive. Now, I want to ask you this question. Are we ready for the real thing? And it's not Coca-Cola. Are we ready for the real thing? Because Satan is going to have something that looks like it, feels like it, talks like it, but isn't it. And you know the famous illustration. You know, anyone ever seen a counterfeit $3 bill? No. Uh, what, do you, what do you make a counterfeit of? The real thing. So Satan's one will look like it's real, but it won't be. And people will come after a worship service where they brought in a lot of contemporary Christian stuff. And they'll say, that felt so powerful. It just felt so good. And I say, yes, it felt that way. But was it the real thing? Did it lead to a revival of primitive godliness? Is that what it led to? 
Or did it just give you the experience without the change? These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They, their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Their worship is man-made. Are we in danger of taking man-made culture and turning that into our God? I worship. It's about me and forgetting the real thing. What is true worship? Worship is an encounter with God and a response to everything that He has done. Worship is saying, God, this is who you are. Worship is both revelation and response. Now, notice what happens when people are in God's presence. Can I give you some quick biblical examples? Isaiah 6 verse 5, Isaiah is in his presence and he says, Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. Ezekiel 1 verse 28, I fell on my face when he was in God's presence. Remember the wheel within the wheel. Matthew 17, verse 6, the disciples at the transfiguration, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. They recognized they were in the presence of God. Revelation 1, verse 17, he comes into the presence of God. He sees the Alpha and the Omega, and he falls at his feet as dead. When we get a true revelation of God, all our pretentious, hypocritical, false emotional revivals will come to an end because we will experience God the way He really is. And there will be this heartfelt response, God, do with me and through me and in me anything that you wish because I am yours. Amen? Amen. That's the kind of worship that we need. Not an I worship, but a God worship. Amen? A worship that says, I am responding to God's grace. So revelation and response. And we need to build into our worship services. We need to build in the Word of God. You take a look at the book of Revelation. You find worship is always a response to God's revelation. God reveals himself, we respond. As we respond, God reveals himself. As God reveals himself, we respond. That's the rhythm of worship. Is it happening in your life? Is it happening in your life? God wants us to worship him. It is a response to who God is rather than just doing rituals. And I feel that Jesus needs to be more than my friend. He needs to be my Lord. And worship needs to recognize we are in the presence of God. Amen. We need to recognize that we are worshiping the God of the heavens. And if worship is a response to God, then God is the audience. He's an audience of one. Who is our worship for? Is our worship for the people? No. Our worship is for God. He's a, it's, it has a guardiance. <laughs> That's, it's a worship of one. God, we're here to worship you. And you can see, even in contemporary Christian music, uh, you know the song, The Heart of Worship, is a recognition that so much of our worship has missed what the heart of worship should be. It's all about you, instead of it's all about me. Worship involves everything about us. It is not just what happens in the worship service. It is our entire lives. And therefore, I want to appeal to you, if you really want to worship God, let it be in your life. Notice Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of what? Worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'll tell you that... Um, I've had some pretty tough talks with people who are involved in bringing in a new worship style. And I have sympathy. I have sympathy. I, ha I have to talk from my heart a little bit before we end. I have sympathy for what's happening. Our current worship needs to change. Would you agree? I mean, I, I'm, I'm sitting there watching people sing the same old songs, 
They're not listening to what they're singing anymore. They're just, they're just singing it as a routine and a ritual. I'm saying that's got to change. And, and I hear people when they say, you know, contemporary Christian music, I feel like I'm finally worshiping God. I hear them. But I'm going to suggest to you that contemporary Christian music is leading us down the wrong path. It's leading us down a path that's, that's about me, myself, and I. It's performance-driven. The artists are, tend to be so much like the secular artists. They're done by the major entertainment labels. This is not where God wants us to go. God is, cause, is calling for a revolution. He's calling for us to have a revival. And, and I don't think we just need to stick with the hymns. There may be good choruses that are out there. I don't think we have to even sing the same old choruses. You know, as a deer pants for the water, you know, we sometimes call contemporary Christian music. But that, that deer has been panting for the water for like 30 years. You need to, you need to feed that deer. You know, what we need is we need real revival. We need something that's not about choruses. It's not about hymns. It needs to be real revival. We need to write new music Amen. that brings out the Adventist doctrines, Amen. that teaches the Adventist theology, that teaches the Bible theology in music that, that will catch on with people, Amen. but that is not taken over by the, by the drums or the amplification. It's about the theology. It's about God revealing himself, and it's about our response. Can, can we have that change in our lives, that it turns from I worship to Lord, I'm broken. It's all about you. Amen. Let's pray, and then if there are any questions, I'll take them. Father God, you know my own personal journey, how I went through contemporary Christian music and how I went through trying to entertain people and to relate to cultures and to people's experience and how I've struggled to know how can I bring out the doctrines without losing the experience? How can I bring out truth and meet life? And Lord, I, I don't claim to have all of the answers. Even as I presented this, I realize that we're going to have to struggle through this together. But one thing I know, you want revival to take place in our lives. And when we're revived, we will sing with the heart and with the understanding. When we're revived, We'll be able to sing together as brothers and sisters. We'll be able to pour out our lives as sacrifices. Every moment of every day will be an act of worship. And then when we come together, we'll be able to praise you from whom all blessings flow. Oh God, you are high and lifted up. Thank you. Thank you for coming into our presence. Thank you that we can worship you. May you change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Questions? Yes. Syncopation. Uh, let, me, let me give you the two sides of that. Number one is syncopation is often referring to rhythm. And many songs have rhythm. You'll even find syncopations in, in songs that have no drum beat whatsoever. It is not necessarily syncopation itself that is wrong. It's what people have done with syncopation. They have allowed rhythm to overwhelm the music. And what syncopation does is it creates a physiological response. And I think, there, isn't there one on, on music that's going to be coming up as part of the session? And I think they're going to deal a little more with that. What is the physiological response to syncopation? It changes your heart rhythms. It changes physiological responses. You have fight or flight 
kind of responses going on. And when it overwhelms the music, it tends to, to have certain effects. And I'll give you an example. Our children, who we've never taught to dance, will listen to syncopated music, and they will dance differently than if they listen to marching music. Because kids dance. You know, they, so you put on music and they'll dance. So what happens is you put on marching music and they march. What happens with syncopated music? Anyone want to guess? They move their hips. It's the strangest thing. You put on syncopated music and they start doing side to side. side to side. Yeah. And we didn't teach them that. They didn't see it on television anyway. It happened automatically. It was a, a physiological response. So you bring syncopated music into the church, you're going to have that. Yeah. Yes? I think it might be unlikely that many people here would think that a worship service such as you used to run as a youth pastor would be an expression of the true spirit of God moving. Is it possible that there's a different counterfeit that may attract perhaps people in this group um, that would come before the real thing? Yeah, I think um, like anything, you s- people are not going to accept... I mean, you can go, I, I couldn't even play stuff that I went online just doing some research. I, I would like play five seconds and have to turn it off. You're not going to take a group like this and get the rock and roll music that's out there and suddenly have them converted to it. So yes, what happens is we change, like, we change gradually. We start accepting certain forms of worship that may gradually lead us away from true worship, worship that's about our feelings. And that's why I say in the 1800s, what happened? Sentimentalism came in. And it was more about my sentimental feelings than it was really about who God was. And I think that's the kind of stuff that may creep into our services, is a more sentimental form of worship. Again, we've got to balance truth and life. But that's why I see what happens with us is we start with choruses that are just sentimental, and then we start feeding more and more on those choruses till they take over and they become our fast food. Any, anyone else? Yes. I just want to make an observation. You said it's more of the baby boomers that are pushing this style of worship. And in our church, we had a, a youth group that was growing substantially. It, it had grown from about two people to, on Sabbath, we were having anywhere from 35 to 40 kids. Oh, praise the Lord. So there were two to 35 uh, no, there was, yeah, from I mean, you grew from two people to like up to 35 yeah, on the Sabbath. Yeah, about a year and a half of work. But I remember sitting at the board meetings with concerns from the older generation um, saying that the youth would stop coming if we'd stop singing the hymns and the scripture songs. I mean, if we continue to sing the hymns and the scripture songs, we needed to bring in this new style of worship. Otherwise, the kids would start, stop leaving. Yeah, I, I am finding that baby boomers in general tend to be the one who want the music that they actually liked secretly in the 80s but weren't allowed to have, or in the 70s but weren't allowed to have. So now they get their chance to have their music. And they're like, this is cool. And I've even heard them say things like that. It's cool. We have my music back in church. And, and the younger generation, I find, is looking for a more powerful, real experience that goes deeper. They're looking for more simple worship than all the elaborate stuff. They say, don't, you don't have to bring all of that stuff out. I want something simple because their lives are filled with that stuff. It's refreshing to come into church that is based on simple worship than all of the technological stuff that they can listen to all week long. 
So, so the real deep experience, there's a hunger for that, which is why one of the reasons why Audioverse is doing so well is because people can get meaty preaching, and so they're going onto Audioverse and downloading that because, like, finally I can get some stuff that's meaty because that's what they're looking for, and it's grown by leaps and bounds. Yeah, any, any other comments or questions? Yes? I have one. This is kind of a different issue because as far as I'm concerned, like, we're talking about contemporary Christian music, and you look at it more as an entertainment than mm -hmm. an actual worship service. Do you think that it's inherently, not inherently bad, but do you think it's poor as more of an entertainment, not in a worship setting? So obviously not like on a Sabbath or anything like that, but I mean like... Yeah, you know, this is, there's always a fine line because there's a, there's a tendency with music. This is what I've discovered with music. The music that I listen to is okay. It's, the problem is your music. <laughs> and so people tend to define what's acceptable and unacceptable by what they like and don't like. And so there is a challenge. Yes, I've, I've got to go back and, and ask some critical questions. Number one, how is this music affecting my life? Is it, is it leading me into just an emotional experience or is, it effect, or is it responding from my experience to change my life? And, and music is emotional, so I don't think we have to have unemotional music. But I have to ask, well, that's one tough question, how's it affecting my life? Number two, who is producing this music? Because do I really want to trust an artist that I fundamentally disagree with in their lifestyle and moral choices? Do I, is that who I want to trust myself to? Because what happens is you start listening to one piece of their music and then you're more likely to listen to another piece of music, and just about every contemporary Christian artist has produced at least one good song. And so that's the challenge. You know, you listen to one, and then you start listening to another. So you, you've got to weigh it up carefully. Do I want to start listening to somebody who I don't agree with their lifestyle choices? And then the third question that you, you're going to have to face is, um, how is this going to be for other people? Is this possibly going to be a stumbling block for someone else? And so those are some tough questions, but I'd rather give you the questions to ask than just simply tell you, listen to this, but don't listen to that. All right, and I know we are out of time, so if you have any other questions, uh, yes, I'm going to take one last one. Um, I, I come from a background of music, and I've played in a lot of Adventist churches, and I've been to a lot of Adventist churches. I, I'm from a first day church, so I kind of know both sides of mm -hmm. the issue. But in one of the... Uh, Adventist churches I belonged to had lots of choirs. Mm -hmm. So I played for the children's choir, I played for the male chorus, I played for the gospel choir, I played, played for the church choir, I played for soul. And it was always about music. It was people, you just couldn't satisfy people, right. even in a church that had so much diversity. So I asked the director once, how about trying, trying to please everyone, but but keep it orderly and reverence, if possible. Mm -hmm. You've probably heard of spirituals. Right. Some spirituals have no music. It's just some are a cappella, mm -hmm. which, you know, slavery time, they mm -hmm. had meaning to Right. I asked them, maybe for the younger generation, maybe a gospel song toned mm -hmm. down. Um, anthems, I like anthems, especially when I was younger, because it reminded me a lot of um, Mozart and Handel's Messiah, right. things like that. I thought that was okay. And, sure. and then there were the little children, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. And then there was this straight a cappella music mm -hmm. that had no piano, no anything. And it just seemed like, 
no matter what suggestion I made, the older people didn't like the younger people. The younger yeah. people and, and this is where my analogy with food, I think, is helpful. So, so what she's describing is, is having some different forms of music for different kinds of people. But what, and, and then people still clashed, but reverently. And having some principles, some broad foundational principles, but allowing some diversity. That's where my analogy with food, I think, comes in. Not all food is good for you. You know, the cultural argument says, if someone wants this or if someone wants that, it doesn't really matter. Not all worship is good for you. But that doesn't mean you all have to eat exactly the same food. You can allow for some diversity in the food we make. And we need to get along with each other. We need to give some space. I don't expect another person, you know, for me, opera music does nothing for me. You know, it's, uh, I, I'd rather go and, and just, you know, take my fingers across a chalkboard. You know, that, that's me in opera music. But do I have a problem if someone else finds meaning in, in a song sung in an operatic style? No. So we've, we've got to allow for some tolerance and some diversity of taste. But we also need to watch out for the devil trying to creep in the back door. Who is the master musician? He, Satan. You know, Jesus is one and Satan is two. And so he can use music just as well as Jesus can. And we need to watch out for that backdoor entrance. So allow some tolerance, recognize that music reaches people in different ways, but at the same time, recognize the dangers. Thank you, everyone. It's been wonderful having you here. I want to remind you there's two more presentations in this particular seminar by Dr. Nedley tomorrow. And he'll be dealing with music in one. And what's the other one? The health health components. So uh, you definitely want to be here if you can be for those two presentations. God bless you and have a wonderful evening and continue to enjoy WYC. Your next appointment is at dinner and then the evening meeting. All right. Very good. Have a great evening.